Brothers and sisters, good morning. We've known each other long enough by now that I think you know that I'm very infrequently satisfied with just a moral of the story. Unless I'm reading a fairy tale, I'd like to get down to what it means. I think that there's an importance and a gravity to the text of the Holy Scripture, and I'm impatient for it to be found out. So today I'd like to investigate that with our gospel. I always think that with this particular section of Luke, <laughs> it's kind of funny how it starts out, and no one ever laughs, except me, by myself, silently, that people approach the temple in just good spirits. They're having a great day. They walk by the temple and say, wow, what a temple. It'd be akin to if you were walking down Charles Street here and all of a sudden you looked at our brand new concrete steps and you said, wow, that's St. Lawrence. They got great steps. Or, uh, you know, if perhaps they lost some of their sheen or their luster, perhaps you looked at some of the more beautiful elements of our sanctuary or our church in general. You look at these beautiful and, and vibrant stained glass windows, perhaps some of the statuary, perhaps even just our Lord in the tabernacle, and it strikes you, oh, beautiful. And you say, what, look at that, amazing. And our Lord's response was, I tell you, a day is coming when, when not a stone will be left upon stone. Uh, which, frankly, is kind of a mood killer. It doesn't really take into account the, the temperature of the room or the attitude of the people because Christ's vision and his concern is for something much longer lasting, for something much more important, and something that takes precedence. Christ is thinking about a thing that has not yet come to pass, but something which shines with a much greater luster than anything that we perceive here and now. So, when he talks about destruction, what do you think he's talking about? Lots of people have had lots of opinions over the ages. What do you think he's referring to? When they say, look at all these costly stones, wow. And he says, all that you see here, the days will come when there will not be left a stone upon another stone that will not be thrown down. To what is he referring? It's an important question. And the answer, perhaps, might seem, at first, underwhelming. He's referring to the temple itself. They said, what a temple. And he said, it's going to be destroyed one day. He's referring to the temple wherein God's spirit dwelt with Israel, with Jerusalem, where they'd offer sacrifice, where sin would be forgiven, where people would come and gather to worship their God in a very formal way because they knew God was there. If they went there, they'd be with God. And Jesus told them, one day this temple will be destroyed. And guess what? It was. It was destroyed. In the year 70 AD, the Roman army came in 
and decimated the city of Jerusalem, tore it down stone by stone until nothing was left standing. And guess what preceded its destruction? Each of the signs that Jesus mentioned here, great and powerful signs, uh, non-Christian historians, non-believing Jews, people who didn't even believe in God anymore, wrote down the things that they witnessed in that time. They said that a few years before Jerusalem was destroyed, they saw the symbol of a sword in the sky and a comet that lasted in place over Jerusalem for a year. They said that they heard the roaring of armies and saw chariots and soldiers as signs in the sky. And the priests in the temple marked that when they all gathered together, they heard the voices of an army saying, let us depart from here. And then the soldiers came and surrounded the town. And do you know the only ones who escaped? This is just history. It was the Christians, the ones who had heard Christ say these things, who had seen the signs, when he said, when you see the armies gathered around the city of Jerusalem, run for the hills. They ran for the hills. They got out because they trusted their God. They trusted their Savior. And all those things came to pass, and that temple was destroyed. Now, why is that important? Why is that worth preaching on on a Sunday? I'm not here to teach you history. That doesn't get you a stamp on your salvation card. Why do we investigate that? Do you remember the importance of the temple? I alluded to a couple different details about it. It was the place where God dwelt. It was the place where sins could be forgiven, where you could go to meet God, all that stuff. Do you remember ever hearing about the decoration of the temple? What it was modeled after? The temple was modeled after the Garden of Eden. Actually, the, the ceiling in the temple was uh, colored and painted with the stars of the sky accurately, uh, according to the sky over Jerusalem. The, the walls were decorated with uh, herbage and, and gardens. They were with animals. Um, Herod, actually, when he redecorated the temple, had golden vines hang down from the ceiling where the offerings could wait and be placed before they moved to the altar. It was supposed to be a symbol and sign of perfect creation. The created world as it was meant to be. And if it was accurately a sign of even the most perfect creation, then guess what we learn from the crumbling of the temple? We learn that even our creation will crumble. If in the destruction of the temple, the Jews were amazed and terrified, they also saw the foretelling of the greater destruction of all of creation, of its falling apart. And Jesus' words about not a stone being left upon stone took on a much greater scope as people saw the foreboding of the end of the world. Now let me put on my um, pastoral counseling hat for a moment. How does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? This is also an important question because for believing Christians, 
there's a certain uh, omnipresence of the end of the world. It's before our eyes and our hearts always. And it's something that we ought to be able to reflect upon, especially now, but at all times. Hold on to that thought. Hold on to those feelings. Because there's one section of the gospel that we haven't really investigated. Christ does speak about the destruction of the temple, but then he turns his attention towards all of those who are conversing with him, those that he's called his own. And he starts talking to them about them. He says, before all this happens, however, they will seize and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and to prisons. They will have you led before kings and governors because of my name. He says, you'll even be handed over by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You can imagine their faces as they heard this. But then he says something curious. They will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair on your head will be destroyed. So this is my question to you. What? <laughs> How can both of these things be true? What does Jesus mean if he prophesies that they will put some of you to death and still not a hair on your head will be destroyed? Was he just being like oddly specific in like some sort of loophole and catch? Well, you'll be dead, but all of your hairs will still be there. Or maybe the inverse for some of us. Not quite, not quite. To what is Jesus referring? When he speaks to these people, do you remember what happens to them? After the stories of the Gospels, after Jesus' own death and resurrection, what happens to those that he calls his own? Literally everything that he said. It doesn't have to be a very creative answer. They were led before kings and governors. They were handed over, many, by friends and relatives. And all but one of his apostles was put to death. And still he says not a hair on their head will be harmed. The only way that this can possibly make sense is if Jesus is using a reference that goes beyond mortal life. St. Paul gives us a clue to Jesus' meaning in writing to his friend Timothy about the dangers he's run and perhaps anticipating his own martyrdom. He confidently says... The Lord will rescue me from every evil and save me for his heavenly kingdom. Paul understood that there was no evil in this world that could permanently harm him if he were given the grace to attain to his real life and to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Something like this is also the meaning behind Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians. He said, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the form of this world is passing away. Paul wasn't suggesting that we live in numbness, or that we become ignorant, frivolous, or irresponsible. Rather, he was reminding us to keep in front of our minds, in front of our eyes, the very temporary nature of this passing world. 
and even while living in it, to keep from loving it too much or placing our ultimate hope in it. Now I'm about to do a thing. It's like a magician. Hmm? I'm not a magician for anyone who's concerned about magic. But just as Jesus was speaking about the temple, and when he spoke about the temple, he actually meant the whole world. When Jesus was speaking to his immediate followers, guess who he was talking about? You. He was talking about you. And I, I really want to make sure you know that. It's important to me that you know and keep in front of your mind and your eyes and your heart the very temporary nature of this passing world. So that just like Paul exhorts his followers, you don't get too wrapped up in it. You don't love it too much. You don't lose sight of the much more important world that allowed Christ to look at the stones of the temple and say, yeah, but they're going to fall away. There's something better. Look with me. It's important to me, personally, that this happens to you, that you keep your heart in, in this posture. Because guess what? I care about you. Love you. You're my people. I belong to you. And when Christ was speaking this way, he wasn't speaking frivolously. He wasn't speaking in some sort of mysterious, unknowable symbol. He was speaking quite clearly. And just like those Christians in Jerusalem who saw the signs and ran for the hills and were saved, so all of us looking for signs, all of us paying attention to what's going on in the world, ought to be aware and keep our eyes focused on the place where Christ has pointed out there is freedom and joy in this teaching of Christ. It's not doom and gloom. It's not hellfire and brimstone. It's a promise that everything in this world, good, but also bad, will one day be wiped away. And behold, a new heavens, a new earth will come. Those whose hopes are limited to this world alone experience tragedy and suffering as overwhelming. It sits, oh, it sends like a weight on your chest. You're caged in. You're trapped by it because what hope do you have from escaping from it? Unless there's another world where freedom reigns and where we don't have to worry about these concerns anymore. Christians know better. They know that each slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So, my friends, as we see the year waning, as we see snow falling, pay attention. Look where Christ is looking. Remember the kingdom that is to come. And let your hearts be set on fire for eternity. Amen.